What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Shadow Talk. With me today, I have the usual crew. We got Casey, Charles, as well as Rick. How are you guys doing today? Good. Hey there. Good. Doing good all good right. Yeah. I expected no other answers. That is the only acceptable answer. Pretty, well, if we gave pretty, you the uh... pretty, pretty good. Oh. Sorry, I've been watching Curb uh, latest <laughs> season. So. Oh man, I love so the good. enthusiasm. That is exactly what it's, we need right now. Yeah, I, I love that show, Rick. I'm just wondering who said it was a slow week. <laughs> Has <laughs> it not been? turn out that? I have no. not noticed. I'll I'll trade with them if they want. <laughs> That'd well, be cool. <laughs> I mean, it has been a busy week. Uh, I think what's been on all of our minds, on all of our plates, is uh, this thing called the DBIR, the Verizon DBIR. Um, Rick, you've done a lot of work on this. Do you want to explain what the DBIR is? Yeah, my suspicion is that most people are familiar with the DBIR. However, I could be wrong. Uh, So the Verizon DBIR is a data breach investigations report. Every year, uh, Verizon worked, this year they worked with 81 partners across 81 countries taking um, incident data um, that then they would look at individual breaches and then come up with uh, some analysis on trends for the previous year. For this data set, it wrapped up in uh, October of 2019. And so they looked here, they looked at almost 160,000 incidents um, and then of those almost 4,000 confirmed breaches. And so basically, if you read the DBIR, it can give you a lot of insight on how to uh, defend yourself. I mean, it's a pretty long report, too, so it makes for some, for some good reading, huh? How many pages uh, is the clock in it? Let's see. I, I may get it wrong. It's either 116 or 113. I can't remember. It's a ton. I, <laughs> either way, that's a pretty meaty report. And there are a bunch of good trends that you can pull out of this year's one. So I, I pulled out a couple. So things like 86% of data breaches are used for financial gain, which is interesting because that's up from 71% in 2019. And there's a whole lot of different trends that you can pull out of this one. And I know that... Um, Rick, you wrote a blog on this one. You want to give us a quick recap? And we also, Digital Shadows, uh, contributed to the report. So you can talk about that. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. It's our second year to be a contributor for the DBIR. Um, we provided, uh, and Alex, you were in the calls with the Verizon team on this. We provided them some of our dark web, criminal underground uh, forum data. Um, and it's not directly attributed to us in the report. Verizon doesn't attribute to individual contributors. Uh, but you can go in there and you can see the areas that talk about criminal forums and keywords on criminal forums as a service is one example was one of the tags that that, that we saw a lot of um, activity there. So I did a blog where I took a little different spin. I, I haven't done this every year, but usually every other year for about the past eight years, I've done a blog on the DBR going back to my time at Forrester. But what I wanted to do on this one was because, as I said earlier, the blo- uh, the data for the DBR ended in the end of October of last year. And how different are we in the past six months uh, since then uh, in this pandemic world? So what I wanted to do was take a look at it from a remote workforce angle. Uh, so that was my, my spin um, that I looked at it. And there's a couple things that I talked about, and I won't dig into it in great detail here, um, but one of them was stolen credentials. Everywhere in that report, stolen credentials, all the things. So if there's one thing listeners out here um, uh, to chat a talker should be doing something about it, is account takeover credential stuffing. Now we've talked about it a lot. We've done a lot of research on it. We've got new capabilities we're rolling out, um, soon there. So that was one of the highlights. And my comment was, uh, was we're going to add more 
SaaS services. We're going to increase our attack surface when it comes to credentials. So we need to have a plan. Uh, so that was one. A uh, second one was there was a, two categories I grouped into one, but it was around errors. They had a misdelivery and a misconfiguration. So I call it the accidental insider. I've said on a podcast before that I'm really can't stand it when people call uh, our employees, our colleagues, users. It's almost like it's a four letter word. Oh, that stupid user. It, I, I find it infuriating. We need to set up transparent security controls that enable our employees to make the right choices. And one of the things that DBR digs into is people sending to the wrong person. I think I'm sending it internally to um, whomever that has a Rick and then an H and I send it outside to someone else. Um, so that was one that they cited that led to some data disclosures that were required from breaches. And then the other was misconfigurations, uh, people making mistakes, oversharing data. One area they didn't talk about specifically, but where we do a lot and we have some upcoming launches is on misconfigurations of um, GitHub. Uh, well, of course, this group knows very well about it because we were at B-Sides DFW over the summer uh, talking about how easy it was to own organizations um, via GitHub. So that was a big one. So that's a big takeaway. And the final one was asset management. Uh, we had problems with asset management in a regular world um, when everything was behind the perimeter, as it were. And now everything is distributed out there. So those are my three big areas. So take a look at that blog. Um, and the other thing I would say on the DBIR itself they do the vertical breakouts. I think they had 21 verticals. So find your vertical and read those tidbits there. They also did uh, an SMB, so small, medium-sized business, uh, 2,000 employees or below. So if you're a small company, they did a cut of the data that way. And then finally, they did geo cuts as well. So if you want to see what's happening in EMEA, what's happening in Asia Pacific, they cut that data as well. So it's a very useful tool for you in your security program. Yeah, it's always, I mean, e even though it is a long report, I still find it incredibly enjoyable to read in part due to the way that it's written. One thing I got to give kudos to the Verizon team for is just the, the humor that's involved there. It always makes me laugh when they include some funny footnotes and it's a great way to break up what can otherwise be a, a really hefty topic to dig through. Lots of jokes in there, lots of jokes. Yeah, so definitely check out the full DBIR report. Uh, and also we'll include the links to uh, the couple of blogs that uh, we'll put out from the Digital Shadows side about the DBIR. So for our second topic today, um, I want to talk about something that's been uh, pretty widespread in the news as of late. It's this uh, new up and coming threat actor called Shiny Hunters. Uh, you may have heard of them, you may not have heard of them, but essentially it's this threat actor that over the past couple of weeks, they first started posting a couple of pretty high profile breaches for sale on cyber criminal marketplaces like Empire. You have breaches that were for Tokopedia, Chatbooks, and a couple of those organizations have also come out and said that you know these leaks were in fact legitimate and they had in fact been targeted. And just today, actually, they leaked uh, around 40 million Wishbone user records uh, for sale on Empire, which includes things like usernames, emails, phone numbers, etc. So one thing that I found was interesting about Shiny Hunters is that it really, really reminds me of the type of activity we've seen in the past from third actors like Gnostic Players, right? Gnostic Players is a third actor that back in 2019, they sold and uh, stole records and credentials belonging to Zynga, Canva, the MyFitnessPal one, as well as Dubsmash. So we're seeing these types of threat actors that are going out there, conducting breaches, stealing that data, and then putting it up for sale on cyber criminal marketplaces and not for cheap, right? Some of these listings can go up to a couple of thousands of dollars. So it's obviously clear that these kinds of uh, credentials, this data is, is useful for cyber criminals. And Casey, I wanted to get your perspective on 
uh, if you could give us a couple of examples as to what exactly these kinds of stolen credentials could be used for, what kind of attacks could be carried out, and why would someone want to go onto Empire, for example, and buy these stolen credentials? Yeah, so just as Rick was hitting on earlier, especially whenever it comes to um, information released in the Verizon DBIR, um, attacks that stem from this kind of data leakage can include credential stuffing attacks or unauthorized account access or takeover. Um, this, these are also de details that fraudsters can use to impersonate victims. So this might not be a direct path for fraud, but it still gives uh, potential attackers pivotal details that could perpetuate identity theft or financial loss or any other access or future attacks on maybe the user's um, address book and sending out more emails. Yeah, and the thing with uh, shiny hunters as well is that they're not just targeting organizations to steal their credentials. They also claim to have breached Microsoft's private GitHub account a couple of weeks ago as well. And they claimed that they had uh, over 500 gigabytes of data that they wanted to sell, but then they're now thinking about publicly releasing it. Uh, so Charles, what did they claim to have taken from, from the GitHub? And is there anything super sensitive out there? How serious is that? Uh, so most of the stuff uh, looked like they posted was like screenshots of the internal open source uh, dev repo uh, that Microsoft <laughs> used. Um, so there's nothing really crazy there. One of the things they, they uh, ended up leaking was actually WinRT, which is like Windows open source Rust uh, programming framework that they were just released um, recently after that anyway. So uh, and nothing too too crazy, too sensitive, but I mean, it's it's just a lot of data out there. That, you know, it's Microsoft's internal stuff, and I'm sure if somebody comes through there, they might find something of value, but as it seems right now, Microsoft doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, like, freaking out about things being out there, I guess, has been the response that I've seen, so. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really surprise me in that case that they're having trouble finding a buyer for that kind of information if a lot of it is, you know, open source anyway, yeah. right? Exactly. So if you want to learn more about Shiny Hunters, be sure to check out the InSum that we published this week uh, that will cover Shiny Hunters um, as the main topic. So now, Casey, I want to move back over to you, and I want to talk about some phishing. That's always fun to talk about, because you recently published a blog right about phishing, right? So do you want to tell us about your blog? Yeah, it was a fun blog to do. Um, I mean, I feel like we say phishing over and over and over. It's a very common topic that, that we have. That word should be banned. It should be. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we have it on our blogs and our podcasts and our white papers, so on and so forth. But this is kind of, I guess, 2020 and kind of like coming up to it in 2019, things seem to be a bit more volatile. And it might be because of, you know, what we've experienced with Maze and the pay, pay or get breach method, or even now what we're seeing now with shiny hunters. But kind of some of the main takeaways that I wanted to, you know, show in this blog are one, legitimacy. Uh, attackers are definitely trying to make their campaigns seem a bit more legitimate. So people get comfortable with familiarity and they feel more, I guess, apt to respond to a phishing email or follow the instructions that are listed in a phishing email. So that's definitely something to keep an eye out for. Um, kind of some of the things that I wanted to highlight in there specifically would be the use of SSL and TLS certification certificates. Um, I mean, they're, they're tagging those onto website domains and making it seem real, and it's definitely uh, making people fall for it. 
Um, second to that would be quality. They're definitely becoming more qualitative in their research before they actually deploy a campaign. So they're quite methodical and they know who their target would be or targets. And um, they're definitely taking advantage of any type of information that they might see um, open source or even sold on criminal marketplaces like your C-level executive data. And then finally, paid services. So your as-a-service services are becoming more popular, be it phishing kits, phishing templates, and then even phishing as a service whenever they use the back-end infrastructure for rent. Yeah, for sure. I think your blog goes along really well as a follow-on from the uh, the longer piece of research that we put out a couple of months ago, the ecosystem of phishing, because Absolutely. what you do essentially is you pull out a couple of trends over the past couple of years and go into those in a little bit more detail and specifically draw them out. So as much as we uh, love to hate on phishing, I think that it's pretty clear at this point that this is something that's not ever going to go away, at least for the foreseeable future. If it did, I would be incredibly surprised. Um, so the more, you know, the more information is put out about it, the more people can try to protect themselves from these types of attacks. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And even at this point in time, even low level attackers are starting to use phishing because it's, it's available to them now they can pay for it. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. So be sure to check out Casey's blog on phishing. Uh, it should be included in the show notes. And as for our last topic, I would like to come back to something that is very near and dear to all of us because I'm sure that we've talked about this. Just You're going to say ransomware, aren't you? Yeah, I, I'm trying to find a way not to say ransomware, but it, it is ransomware, spoiler alert. Um, particularly, it's, it's Sudden Akibi, who we all know, we all love, um, but they've just been hitting the news headlines so much over the past week. And I think this most recent event where they targeted the, uh, the Grubbenshire, uh, Mazelis and Sachs law firm, it's just, they've been getting so much publicity on that. And the fact that they're being so out there and so open with their extortion tactics, it's just blowing my mind. Uh, so, so what they've done recently now is they targeted that law firm that has a bunch of high profile clients, if you think celebrities like Madonna, right? And they're now asking for a $24 million extortion payment before they start releasing the files, of which they actually have started to release some of the files. And most recently, they said, hey, we have some uh, dirty laundry, quote unquote, on uh, Mr. President Donald Trump, even though the law firm said that he was never a client. Apparently, the data they released on Trump uh, was really not useful. It was mainly just emails that mentioned Trump either in passing or as the actual word to Trump and not referring to Mr. Donald Trump. So it's, I don't know, I, I, gotta, I gotta think about Sudden Akibi and what they've been doing, but it's just been interesting how they've been publishing these blogs on their site, Happy Blog, uh, reaching out to the, the companies that they're targeting as well as reaching out and speaking directly to the media. And that really reminds me of the kind of extortion techniques we saw by threat actors like the Dark Overlord famously, you know, throughout 2016 and 2017. And then all of a sudden, these extortion techniques are adopted by all these ransomware operators now, which is something that we also love to talk about. So again, um, I think, Casey, if you want to give us kind of a, a lowdown in a couple of, couple of seconds, uh, what's, what's the kind of benefit of these extortion techniques for ransomware? Well, we've already spoken about this pretty heavily, but I mean, <laughs> uh, this this kind of method does introduce a dual threat. So you can co coerce companies into meeting the extortion demands, but it's also a complete PR nightmare. So you have user data lost, but then you also have user data encrypted or really all data encrypted. And then you have to pay or you have to face privacy law issues or all of the above. It's, it's a terrible, terrible situation to be in. Yeah. 
So actually from, from Rick, from a CISO perspective, say if you're you know, CISO of an organization that's affected by this kind of ransomware slash data breach dual attack, what are the top steps you think you'd have to do to protect yourself? You know, it's not as simple anymore as just saying, hey, you need to have backups to protect yourself from ransomware. So what's, what's the kind of course of action that companies have to take now? First thing, hopefully you will have done is a tabletop exercise well in advance of this circumstance occurring so that you will have a a battle plan, if you will, both within the IT and security organization, but critically beyond uh, with internal counsel, external counsel, your PR team. So that's the, the very first thing is if, if you guys um, have not done a tabletop in an extortion scenario, be it for data or be it for um, encryption, um, you should do that immediately. Put that on your next quarterly tabletop exercise plan. Yeah, for sure. Planning for those kinds of things um, in advance is, is really, really good. And I know you guys talked about, you and Charles actually, about purple team exercises that you can do to help prepare for uh, different types of attack scenarios well in advance. Uh, so, I mean, speaking of which, uh, Charles, did you have any kind of input as to what organizations can do to make themselves more resilient to these types of attacks? I mean, what infection vectors does, does Sudden Akibi use? So shockingly, um, phishing, usually. Uh, <laughs> Again, there's that word. Yeah, so they uh, they'll typically send a malicious document. So I mean, what you really want to do is just train train people up, have some good security awareness policies and training in place, making sure people are suspicious of stuff that they aren't sure about. Uh, you know, have a way to report that, have it looked at. Um, also, just you know, disabling macros. That way, if somebody does click on a document, it's a little bit more difficult for it to decide to call out to a server somewhere and download stuff onto your network. But actually, on uh, on that point, Charles, the DVIR also talks about Microsoft Office documents being one of the top vectors uh, for people when they start clicking on stuff. So yeah, just uh, DVR supports that as well. I mean, just just honestly, having a good security awareness policy regarding phishing and disabling macros shuts down like a massive attack surface for like most people because it eliminates a lot of the low hanging fruit. Uh, so you have to start looking for a little bit more harder, harder things to get into uh, at that point. But um, for that, that's, that's really the big things I would say they're takeaways to kind of prevent these kinds of attacks. Yeah, for sure. I think it would be really interesting if we said, uh, or if we tried to do a next week's or the, the week after that podcast without mentioning fishing a single time, I don't know if that's even going to be possible, but that would be a fun game to play because it seems like everything in the end comes down to fishing. Can we oh. like rename it like banana bread or something? Then we would just be talking about banana bread all the time, Casey. And I would, then I would just get hungry and that's no good when I'm recording a podcast. You're right. Exactly. We, can't, we can't have you get hungry. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll get hangry and you wouldn't like Alex when he's hangry. <laughs> well, well, you see there, Rick, my, my secret is that I'm always hangry. So. Oh, wow. That makes sense. <laughs> All right. I think, I think that's a great stopping point. Um, so thank you everyone for, uh, for listening. Um, I know it's, uh, this upcoming week is Memorial Day. So does anyone have any kind of fun plans that they're planning on, on Memorial Day? The weather's supposed to be really crappy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what do, you, what do you normally do on Memorial Day? Is that the one where you go out and grill stuff? Yeah, that's where you go grill hot dogs and hamburgers and drink booze and that's, have that's a That's also time. 4th of July, though. Maybe we can just bring the grill inside of the house and see what happens. I do not recommend anyone bring their grill inside the house, especially just, Rick. Don't don't bring your smoker inside. <laughs> no, just bring your uh, just bring your deep fryers inside the house. Highly <laughs> ah, recommend. Ah, that's a good one. Drop I mean, I got frozen turkeys right inside it. <laughs> oh God, please no. I don't even know why I'm laughing because I have no idea what happened with that, Charles. An explosion.
Really? If you, if you, if you put uh, like water into boiling grease, it causes an insane amount of bubbles. Okay, so, yeah, um, that's, that's definitely not good. I would not recommend anyone do anything even remotely similar to that. Yeah. I'll send you a video, Alex. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of videos out there, huh? Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks, every <laughs> thanks everyone for joining us today. Um, we'll see you guys next time. Oh, bye. Bye. bye.